Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. Love is everlasting love is only kind love is always patient love will help your mind. Why not commit to voting no on a nominee that will not tell you that Roe v. Wade is well, president. I think I've made it pretty clear that if a nominee has demonstrated hostility to Roe v. Wade and has said uh, that they're not going to abide by that long-standing precedent, uh, that I could not support so you need that, that nominee. But it's not—we don't even know who the nominee sure, but is. You need, a lot so, of people are looking though but, and but, saying we need to hear that from you. But they have. I mean, I did a whole podcast. I've done. Interview yeah, after but do you interview. Need to hear that. But but what I'm that telling commitment. you is how can you ask me to take a position on a nominee whose identity I don't yet know? That I'm amazed that people on both sides of the aisle have already committed to voting either for or against a nominee whose identity they do not know. I'm not. I'm not amazed by it at all. People are drawing their conclusions along partisan lines and they're having the the reason they're doing that is because they they want to. They want to be clear about what they support. And maybe that's wrong. Maybe she really does have the best uh, way of doing that. I mean, I I tend not to agree with her just because she's she's hinging her support on. The, the person supporting Roe v. Wade as longstanding precedent. Remember, this is Susan Collins, one of the two women in the Senate who are elected on the Republican side who actually spend all of their time advocating for abortion. It, it's, it's ludicrous. I, and I get it. She, I guess, has every right to do that. Her constituents don't seem to mind. They keep sending her back. Um, she is getting, a, a, you know, she's been there for a long, long time. It's going to be interesting to see who they elect to replace her when the time comes. But she goes into some explanations of her rationale and, you know, I guess it's okay, uh, you know, to say um, she actually didn't sound that nonsensical in this next bit. It's number two. That's what you're asking me to do. There may be um, an individual. The issue that it is about the person. There, there may be and an, your belief that it's 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 precedent, and that that law well, should. I've stay. already told you that the person demonstrates hostility towards Roe v. Wade and doesn't consider it to be settled law and precedent. That I I don't see how I can vote to that for for that person. But what you're not allowing for is there could be a person who is very strongly for Roe v. Wade, but lacks the qualification, the uh, experience, the integrity, has ethical issues in the background. Um, The FBI report turned up some troubling issues. I'm not going to vote for that person just because they're for Roe v. Wade. So, again... So, she says... If the person has other issues, then she won't vote them even if vote for them, even if they are for Roe v. Wade. In the end, her lack of support for the pro-life issue should be a disqualifier for her to continue to be on the Republican side. We've seen the Democrats make that a reason why you can't be on the uh, Democratic side. In other words, you can't you can't run as a Democrat anymore if you're calling yourself pro-life. How is it that she's able to run as a Republican calling herself, quote unquote, pro-choice? Why are we allowing that? Uh, It's a question that remains uh, to be answered, I guess. But it has to be answered by her constituents because, you know, she clearly has the support of those voters because they keep sending her back. So that's that's. It's kind of sad and ridiculous and and. It doesn't make any sense, but there it is. Uh, so I, I want to pivot over to um, there's some a- actual news coming out of. Um, so you've got this psychiatric center that's in the news. And here on the show, I've called repeatedly for us to stand back up our mental health apparatus. And the AP is reporting now that there's a psychiatric center that is supposedly one of the largest and best and it's been called hell on the inside, you know, so this is in Seattle 
and it's Washington State's largest psychiatric hospital. And behind the walls and the the bars on the windows and all of that are conditions that fail U.S. health and safety standards. So you've got overworked nurses and psychiatrists saying that they're navigating a system that punishes employees who speak out despite the critical staffing shortages that they're experiencing. And they interviewed a number of people, including Lisa Bowser, who says they don't have enough staff to protect patients or provide them with the bare minimum of care. And she said her own mother spent two years at Western State Hospital and suffered dozens of falls and assaults. She said going there was like going into hell. She's suing the state-run facility. She said she honestly thought they'd kill her mom before she could get her out. Now, U.S. and state regulators for years have found health and safety violations at the 800-bed hospital, ranging from assaults on staff to escapes of dangerous patients, including a man who was accused of torturing a woman to death. Even after that 2016 escape, a nursing supervisor told the AP that a patient who'd been in charge, charged with murder and found not guilty by reason of insanity was placed in a less secure ward and the nurse faced retaliation after reporting the danger to nonviolent patients. And this is the reason, you know, why I, I, I really disagree with the whole insanity defense where they say the person was insane and then they get to go on living while their victim has died, the family members are suffering, and the insane person then goes on to get to continue to kill and maim and assault and do all kinds of things instead of saying, you know, that this insane or not, you're a danger to society and we have no way of protecting society from you. I, I, I don't agree with the way that they, they treat people when they, they, oh, the person is criminally insane. Okay. How does that change what they did? So they had a shakeup in leadership at this place. They vowed to correct the problems, but the hospital continually is found to put patients at risk, according to a recent surprise federal inspection that was levied upon them. Some of the patients aren't getting oxygen. They're not getting blood sugar checks. Their injuries aren't properly treated. They're held in restraints for too long. The building has uh, certain areas that are deemed a fire hazard. It's just a lot of what you would call um, really lax management. Like, why would you want your family member to be kept at this place? So after years of chances and and opportunities to fix it, another center um, was stripped of its certification and federal funding totaling $53 million a year, which represents about 20% of its budget. So they're... They're they're trying to strike back at the place and get it reformed, but the answer is not to close down all of these centers. The answer is to reform them, to bring in new staff, and to bring in new leadership and to run them properly. We have to have somewhere for people who are mentally ill to be treated, and simply closing these places down and sending the people who are mentally ill out into the streets to fend for themselves and to be a part of the homeless population, which exposes regular Americans to being attacked by them and assaulted, there has to be another way. So this, this article doesn't present all of the solutions, but it does go in depth about all of the different forms of retaliation that are being suffered by the nurses who are trying to bring some kind of a semblance of normalcy to this place. They really work a lot of overtime. Um, they have gaps and staffing problems. Some of the nurses are been assaulted themselves and severely beaten because they don't have enough staff to protect them when patients go off the rails. They they don't have staff to protect the nurses who are on duty. I mean, it just sounds like just a complete mess. And it needs to be fixed. But again, is it is it that we need these uh government run facilities or should they be privately run? A lot of questions. And we need answers to them and we need a a solution so that we can, you know, uh, humans, humans are going to human, but what can we do about it? Now I want to pivot over to jobs. June jobs report is showing that the U.S. added 213,000 jobs in June and wage growth is light. The unemployment rate rose to 4% as more people returned to the job market. So a slight uptick from 3.8% but still historically fantastic numbers. And this is continuing to power forward. 
Economists surveyed by Reuters had expected a non-form payroll gain of 195000 and the jobless rate to hold steady at 3.8%, which had been tied for the lowest rate since 1969. But another solid month of job gains provided little help to wages. In addition to payroll gains, average hourly earnings rose 2.7% year over year, which was a bit below expectations of a 2.8% increase. So that's good news. It's you know, not as good as possibly they were hoping for, but still good news. Along with the rise in overall unemployment, the rate for blacks, which had been at a record low of 5.9%, jumped to 6.5%. Interesting, but we have to look at trends from month to month and then year over year. And so we'll see how that uh, actually, if that's a trend next month and the month after, or if it's something that's just a fluke. Uh, for the summer, or, you know, there are different things that can impact those numbers. Still good numbers. Um, Okay, so now at this point, I want to kind of go into a little bit of human interest. And it's a sad story, but we have to talk about this. Um, We're seeing more and more of this is the second story in the news of this nature. And so what is the story? Well, it's this YouTube vlogger, who ran the site High on Life on YouTube. And they were in British Columbia's third tallest waterfall. And he was there with a friend, another guy who's on the show with him. And so, you know, British Columbia in Canada. He, they call him an adrenaline junkie. His name's Riker Gamble. He was with his channel co-creator, Alexei Andrevovich. And... Alexi's girlfriend, Megan Scraper. The three of them tragically plunged over a 100-foot cliff, a waterfall really, to their deaths at the Shannon Falls in British Columbia. Now the three of them were they they were the stars of this YouTube channel called High on Life Sunday Fundays and they post a lot of exotic travel and adventure videos. One of their stints landed Gamble and Like in, a, in jail for seven days for trespassing at Yellowstone's National Park. On Tuesday, the trio hiked and swam in a series of pools that fall along the 1,100-foot height of the waterfall. Then walked af- they, they were walking along the ledge right afterwards. So they went swimming. They filmed themselves swimming in the dangerous pools on the edge. And then they were walking along the ledge. Scraper who was walking along the ledge with them, the, the only woman in the group, she fell. So the guys reached over and attempted to save her, but they also fell and got swept into the currents. They drowned. The victims were all in their 20s and early 30s, and after they fell, the search and rescue operation was launched for two days, and emergency crews made an aerial drop into the mountainous area and recovered the bodies on Wednesday evening. High on Life is a YouTube collective based in Vancouver, which boasts 500,000 subscribers. Gamble, Lyak, and a third friend named Parker Huser started the channel. They were friends since high school and have been making videos ever since. So, I mean, not to mention the cost of flying in there to get their bodies it's the fact that they, they're dead. So they have started a GoFundMe page. Um, they, you know, they're obviously they're very sad about the loss of their, their cohorts over this, this, this tragic accident. But they've been in trouble before. Because in one video in 2014, they jumped off of cliffs into waterfall pools dozens of feet below the Lynn Canyon suspension bridge where deaths from diving have been reported. They've run into trouble for their daredevil antics. In September of 2016, Gamble, Lyke, and two other friends were uh, facing charges for vandalizing Yellowstone National Park by dipping their hands into the Grand Prismatic Springs, which is the largest hot spring in the U.S. It's off limits to visitors. And they spent several days in jail for violating Yellowstone rules in Wyoming and were banned from U.S. federal lands. They were fined but not giving jail time. So what do we have to say to that? That you don't have to die to have a popular YouTube channel. Exercise wisdom. It's a sad story. These people were struck down in their prime, but they did it to themselves. All right. 
We'll be back with more right after these messages. I'm Kevin Sorbo. You may know me from my TV series Hercules or Andromeda or one of my hit films such as Let There Be Light, God's Not Dead, or What If. I wanted to invite you to offer your full support for the ministry of Preborn and its leader, Dan Steiner. The team at Preborn is very focused and very successful at saving preborn babies from abortion. The ministry of Preborn saves babies' lives through ultrasound. By letting a mother hear her baby's heartbeat and see her baby in the womb, She'll choose life 80% of the time. For $140, you can help save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes to saving babies. To donate, go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. Every baby deserves to be born. Up next, Carol Swain with two minutes to think about it. From poverty to professor, from GED to PhD, a bold Christian speaking truth to power. Here's Carol with today's two minutes. Hello, folks. So we're all Nazis now. All meaning anyone at odds with the opinions of the far left. Nazi is just one of the many popular epithets of verbal mudslinging the far left resorts to. Some of their other favorites being racist, homophobe, Islamophobe, misogynist, fundamentalist. The thing is, it's very easy to sling insults when you don't have a rational argument to support your position or you just don't want to act civilized or rational. You probably notice the vitriol and insults are pretty much a one-way street from left to right. When folks on the right attempt to engage the positions of the hard left, the mudslinging begins. Interestingly enough, You almost never hear someone on the far right respond to the hard left with, yeah, and you're an idiot. You don't have to when you have a logical argument for your position. By the way, if you know your history, the Nazis were national socialists. Yes, socialists, big government, high-tax socialists, repress free speech, intimidate the opposition socialists. Any of that sound like something coming from the news of the last few months? Besides... If I were a descendant of the victims of the real Nazis, I'd feel my heritage being insulted by how cavalierly the label gets tossed about by the folks acting out today. Just remember, they have their labels, but they don't know or have truth. The truth that sets men free. To learn more about Carol and the Carol Swain Foundation, visit carolmswain.net. And make sure you follow her on Facebook at Professor Carol M. Swain and on Twitter at Carol M. Swain. Welcome back to Spacey on the Right. The world, I'm not doing the bidding of uh, Donald Trump. I oppose Donald Trump's immigration policies, his uh, uh, approach to Charlottesville, and when I have an opportunity, I tell him that. I am making the same arguments about civil liberties I've made for 50 years and that I would be making if Hillary Clinton had been elected president and people were trying to impeach her. But at a, you know, people talk about parties as if that's something serious. I don't care about parties. I'm invited to too many. But at a party this week on Martha's Vineyard, a woman said, if Dershowitz were here tonight, I'd stab him through the heart. This is a Martha's Vineyard woman saying she would stab me through the heart. Another Martha's Vineyard, or a professor at uh, MIT, Professor Nicholas Negroponte, who has previously said, He wished there were no New York Times and that people only got the news that represented their own personal worldview so that they wouldn't hear opposing points of view. The same guy who said soon there'll be a pill that you can swallow and you'll learn French overnight so you won't have to go through the process of learning French. He's leading the campaign to try to get other people to uh, shun me in every way and not to engage with me. Um, Now they're losing because the vast majority of people even in Martha's Vineyard and in Chilmark, can't stand people who try to stop speech and try to stop debate. So it's backfiring. But 
the other point that's very important is they did this to try to hurt me, but the end result is they're helping Donald Trump. They are strengthening Donald Trump's hands. The people who try to shun me are giving Donald Trump and his base an argument about what the radicals are doing. Hmm. Uh, and that's uh, Alan Dershowitz. Welcome back to the program. It's Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Thank you for being with us today. Happy Friday. I'm looking forward to the weekend, even though we had a really beautiful break in the middle of the week, didn't we, for the 4th of July, celebrating the birth of our country and our independence from Great Britain. And look how fantastically that has gone. Uh, if there was ever a cause celebrate that we can look back and say, yeah, we got that one right. It's our separating off from the monarchy in Great Britain. Um, so we... We're listening to just then um, Alan Dershowitz, and he was on with Tucker Carlson talking about some comments that he'd made about how uh, on the cocktail party circuit, he's getting some pushback for not being a Trump supporter, even though people are saying he's a Trump supporter. And his comments have actually kind of gone viral in, in an interesting way. You've got Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski over at MSNBC actually laughing at him and saying, you know, tough luck and, you know, really relishing the idea that he is having trouble with friendships and relationships because of his honesty about the witch hunt that is the Mueller investigation. And so it's not that Dershowitz supports Donald Trump. That's what he was explaining at the very opening of that clip. He doesn't support Donald Trump, but he also doesn't support a misuse of government to try to unseat the duly elected president of the United States. There's a reason why the Republicans never filed impeachment charges against Barack Obama. As you can tell, a politically motivated prosecution could have been mounted by the Republicans when they char- when they were in charge of both parts of government. The reason they didn't do it is, I mean, obviously the number one reason is they didn't want to be called racist uh, because the, it, no matter what good reasoning they might have had for attempting to do so, it would have been framed as racism by the party of old white men. But there was a secondary reason. Barack Obama was elected the president of the United States. So whatever it was that they felt might have been an impeachable offense, which would have acted as a censure because Barack Obama never would have resigned, it was still the wrong thing for the party that was out of power to do to try to make a point to the American people. And if it's anything the Republicans learned, it's that even though they were perfectly in the right for impeaching Bill Clinton for lying under oath, it's not if it's right. It's if it's expedient and beneficial and has a clear cut purpose that can be served that the American people can get behind. And the issue that we have here right now with this prosecution by Mueller is as it drags on it's harming the democrats more than they can actually calculate i think the walk away hashtag on twitter people will say that's anecdotal i have here on this show myself said many many times that twitter is not all of america it represents a very specific swath of people who are very engaged on social media twitter isn't everything but it does have some uh, it, it it's like you can feel the ripple from twitter happening in everyday life. And the Democrats have already seen, I'm not sure how much of it they've really absorbed into themselves, but they've seen what happens when they ignore the concerns of regular everyday Americans who don't live on the coast. They lose elections. So there's, there's, there's legs here. There's something here. So while Alan Dershowitz is sharing anecdotal type things, what he's talking about, about hard left people shunning him, those same types of things are happening in everyday life. And when Americans who really like the tax reform package, who like the lower utility bills, did you know that our utility bills are lower in 48 states due to the tax reform package? It's not just the bonuses. It's the everyday uh, ramifications, the ripple effects of the tax reform bill. It's the full employment that we're experiencing. So many Americans working and really earning a living and doing well. Everywhere people look, they're seeing signs of an economy that is very robust and is doing well. Democrats refusing to acknowledge that doesn't mean it's not still happening. So what happens? What, 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 what is the result of the shunnings? Because if you think it's happening to Dershowitz, it's happening all over the place. Anyone who says they're enjoying the tax reform package is finding that hardcore liberals are 
well, I don't want to spend time. All she ever does is say good things about Donald Trump. Well, that's not actually saying anything good about Donald Trump. I'm enjoying having more of my pay and my paycheck. I'm enjoying the tax reform bill. That should be something that you can say no matter who you supported for the presidency. So then that brings us to the never Trump contingency. So Pete Hegseth over at uh, Fox News was talking about the desperate members of the never Trump conservative movement who have now called on voters to support Democrats in November. So Max Boot, Steve Schmidt, George Will, who actually denounced his Republican affiliation as if we cared. I mean, he left the Republican Party a long time ago, in my opinion. They've now renounced their membership in the Republican Party. Boot actually wrote on July 4th that he's rooting for a Democratic takeover from both houses in November, which only sounds like sour grapes coming from someone who used to espouse conservative ideals and actually be a thought leader on the right. He says, like post-war Germany and Japan, the Republican Party must be destroyed before it can be rebuilt. Hegseth was actually guest hosting the Ingram Angle and said that these never-Trumpers are now maybe even more hysterical than Democrats in voicing this anti-Trump kind of rhetoric. Media buzz Howard Kurtz was on the show chatting with him and shared how it's hard not to notice that the defections from the GOP under Trump Trump bring this favorable publicity, MSNBC contracts, and new respect from the left. And I've noticed over on CNN, when they have a Republican on now, that person is reliably, they'll they'll say, I'm pro-life, or they'll talk about lower taxes, limited government, but they always frame it in an opposition to Donald Trump. So they connect their conservative ideals to opposition to Donald Trump. So that's kind of the calling card. If you oppose Donald Trump, you can be any, you could be an alien. You could be espousing some kind of, you know, uh, alien uh, political affiliation. They'll have you on because the idea is you're against the president. I know some, you know, some people are, are really hesitant to say anything good about Donald Trump because they don't want to be seen as being some kind of like MAGA phone or whatever the, the derogatory comments are. But telling the truth about what's been happening is, is, just telling the truth. I, I agree that the rhetoric has become overheated and it can be overheated in the party that lost the election. But we're kind of past that. Like, we, we, I mean, it's not 2017 anymore. This is the summer of 2018. We should be able to go out to get a bite to eat, go to the movies, uh, you know, see people that we know are on the opposite political party at the YMCA or the the J and, you know, still be nice to each other. We should still be able to treat each other with respect and humanity. I don't think that's what's happening. And, And make no mistake about it. It is helping Donald Trump. So if you really don't want to help the president, then civility and kindness and basically acting like a human being, that's the best way to go about Uh, getting your points across. So there's another big kind of dust up on online social media happened over the the little break there for July the 4th. And it was so like, I, I was actually surprised and I don't get surprised on Twitter a lot. You've got this Huffington Post contributor and she's white and you know, she's on Twitter and she tweets out, her name's Kimberly Johnson. She tweets out, about how she's driving down the street and she sees this. This is her tweet. I'll just read you the actual tweet out on the road. The other day I saw an affluent black man driving a BMW with two bumper stickers. One was pro NRA and the other one was a tea party sticker that read, don't tread on me. This left me very confused. So people were immediately outraged so much so that she deleted the tweet because people were calling her a racist. So then she said people were putting words in her mouth. She said she was intending to make a point about what motivates people to vote for certain candidates. And she says she deleted it because people were putting words in her mouth and changing her original intent. For the record, all caps, I do not believe everyone should vote the way I do. However, I am free to wonder what motivates people to vote. And so there's a lot, um, a lot there that I can take apart. And I'll just... The, the point that needs to be made here is that liberals don't own black people. Liberals don't own the way blacks can think or vote. And the idea that 
you know, Kanye West was getting threats from gang members in California saying, don't leave Calabasas because he said he liked Donald Trump. That's what black people have to deal with from other blacks who feel like you shouldn't be allowed to vote this way or that way. So much so that when you see, I mean, it's literally like an open contempt for anyone who isn't a Democrat who sports the permanent tan. And the more vehemently you oppose that, the more people kind of, they're, they're, it's basically like a war, an all-out war on blacks who don't vote for Democrats. There's no all-out war on whites who don't vote for Democrats or Hispanics or Asians who don't vote for Democrats. It's just the black people. So can you see why I would say to her, and I mean, I, I saw so many people on Twitter who were saying to her, because I was on a little hiatus. I was not tweeting or reading tweets on July the 4th. July the 5th was our uh, anniversary for me and my husband. And so I was, you know, I was kind of unplugged. But when I did plug back in and saw the story, I noticed that some black conservatives were tweeting her, you don't own me, which is one of my favorite responses to liberals who try to tell me how to think. You don't own the thoughts of black people. As much as you may want to, as much as you may feel like you've taken enough for the team by being a liberal and supporting all these different policies that you think are inane and idiotic, but you're supporting them because you don't want to be called a racist and that gives you the right to tell black people how to think, you're wrong. You don't have the right to tell anyone how to think or vote or uh, what their understanding is based on their race. Now, if you have a problem with supporting candidates based on what they're saying they want to do when they get to Congress or to the Senate or whatever, I mean, by all means, have at it. But just telling someone, oh, you're black, you can't have a tread on, don't tread on me sticker, or you're black, you can't support the NRA. You got to know that comes off really elitist and kind of plantation-y. Yeah, it does. It comes off as if you're basically saying, you don't know what you're, you, you can't think for yourself. You don't know. You need, you need a white liberal to tell you what you, because you're, you're off. No, no thanks. No, we don't. We'll think and vote and believe the way that we want to, just like every other American is able to do. Just because people are black doesn't mean they can't figure it out for themselves. I mean, it really, it's, it's almost like being in Bizarro World or some kind of um, uh, like the Twilight Zone. You look around and you see people saying things that you're like, I know you don't really mean that, but they do. And I know you wouldn't actually say that to my face, but they would. I can't tell you how many times I've had a white liberal tell me, oh, you're, you're really confused about supporting the NRA. They're against black people. No, they're not. They're a civil rights organization. They were the ones who wanted to arm blacks back when there was Jim Crow and cross burnings on people's yards. They were the ones who said you, you'd best get a gun. You'd best get a rifle to protect your family. You, we need to change the law so you can own guns so you can protect your family at night. That's something that was happening and the NRA was a crucial part of that arming blacks and making sure they knew how to operate their firearms. The Democrats were the ones who were passing the laws and legislation that segregated blacks and were also saying, hey, you know what? You can't own a gun. But I mean, you know, that's too much information. That's like trying to explain to someone who called you an uncle Tom that uncle Tom was the hero in that book. That's always a really enlightening moment. Try it. Next time someone calls you an Uncle Tom, explain to them who Uncle Tom was in the book, that he was actually the hero, the most godly person in the book. Usually at that point, you see little explosions going off behind their, their eye sockets because they're like, what? That can't be right. All right. When we get back, we're going to have a very special guest on the program. Missouri Attorney General Josh Hawley is going to be calling in. He's going to be discussing with us um, some interesting things that are going on in the state of Missouri politically and sharing why he's running uh, in the primary for the seat that he's seeking to, to get the nomination for so that he can run against Claire McCaskill. And so we'll be speaking with him and listening to his rationale. Um, and then we'll take some calls. If you'd like to call in 866-963-2037, uh, call lines are open and you can also check us out at urbanfamilytalk.com. We'd love to have you come over and hit the subscribe button. So that's the music. We'll be right back after this.
This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. Slow down, moms. That sounds pretty counterintuitive, doesn't it? Haven't we all wished to work faster, smarter, and better? But that isn't what God has for us. We have been given life to enjoy abundantly, which means that we must prune our activities for our own sanity. As American culture moves at an ever-increasing speed, God calls moms to slow down and say no sometimes. Not only is there power in doing so, there is relief because we must use our time wisely. We often feel the pressure to say yes because we don't want other parents to question our fitness. This fear leads to overscheduling and stress. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 13 says, The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. Pray about your family commitments and feel free to say no. God will bless you for it. I'm Stacy Washington. Find out more at StacyOnTheRight.com. My name is Max. I'm 17. I thought meth would help me forget the anger I had towards my dad, but I ended up an angry drug addict. Thankfully, I came to Teen Challenge, and now I'm drug-free. If you know an adult or teenager who's struggling with a chemical addiction, Teen Challenge can help. Call us today at 417-581-2181 or reach us online at teenchallengeusa.com. This is Urban Family Talk. Coming next week on The Dwelling Place. Pastor Al Pittman continues to walk us through the Bible line by line and verse by verse to let God show us just how timeless His truth is. That's next week on The Dwelling Place. Netflix continues to ignore the outcry about 13 Reasons Why. The American Family Association, along with Parents Television Council and several other pro-family groups, have reached out to the streaming service, urging the cancellation of their program. Netflix has not even responded to our letter. Instead, they released an even more vile Season 2 and are producing Season 3. Netflix CEO Reed Hastings says their program is engaging and that it fosters discussion of taboo topics like suicide and sexual assault. But at what cost? 14-year-old Anna Bright and several other teens have committed suicide after watching the show. Hastings calls our objections propaganda. Does he feel the profitability of his company is worth more than the lives damaged or lost because of his show? Please sign our petition to Netflix, learn more, and share our action alert when you visit afa.net. And pray Reed Hastings will recognize the dangers of 13 Reasons Why. This is Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. Yeah, it's me, and it's Friday, and it's a fantastic day to be alive, to be an American, and to be able to be on the radio live and direct to you from the studios here in St. Louis on Urban Family Talk and American Family Radio. So welcome back to the program, and it's my pleasure to also have our next guest on the show, I really enjoy a lot of back and forth, and I love it when I'm able to speak to experts. And our next guest is an expert, as someone who's argued cases before the Supreme Court, is currently the Attorney General of the state of Missouri, and will be uh, going up against possibly Claire McCaskill in the race for the Senate, coming up here uh, in just a few weeks after the primary concludes here in, in uh, August. It's my pleasure to welcome Josh Hawley to the program. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be with you. You know, I've been looking forward to speaking with you because there's so much going on in Missouri that's national news, but there's also the race that you're running. And, uh, you know, on the record, full disclosure, we've had um, Tony Minetti on the program and have also reached out numerous times. We were actually on our third request uh, to Claire McCaskill to ask her to come on the show and discuss her candidacy. Uh, but as it's still the primary, maybe she's waiting and maybe she'll join me later. Who knows? But it's good to be speaking with you. So first, let's let's cover a few of the Supreme Court things because you have or argued before the Supreme Court. Um, where, do you, where do you see things going with the three front runners that have currently been laid out? Uh, next week, the president's going to make an announcement about the, a, nominating a replacement for Justice Kennedy. 
Well, look, I mean, the Supreme Court, I really think, is the defining issue of the day, and it's the defining issue of this race for the United States Senate. I mean, this next justice will determine the future direction of this court for the next uh, 30, 40 years. I mean, who knows, potentially longer, but I would think certainly for the next several decades, and that will really shape our law as it relates to religious liberty, uh, as it relates to uh, the First Amendment free speech, and so many other types. It relates to immigration and so many other topics. So this is such a defining issue. By the way, Cece, I can't help but say you said that Senator McCaskill had turned down all your invitations. You know, she's turned down all mine, too. I've been asking her to debate on the Supreme Court or anything, for that matter, for literally weeks now. And uh, she just won't do it. So uh, she is just not willing to answer questions on the record and uh, to face the opposition and to uh, to actually face her constituents on these issues. But let me just say this. The president's list of nominees, potential nominees, I think is fantastic. My criteria for Supreme Court justice, really simple. Number one, got to be somebody who believes in the Constitution the way the people wrote it. We need justices who say, you know what, it's the people who write the Constitution, not the judges, not the bureaucrats, the people, and they're going to apply the Constitution the way the people wrote it, number one. Number two, judges need to have guts. This next Supreme Court justice needs to be able to stand up to the media entertainment complex, the people who fund Claire McCaskill, and, uh, and actually have some backbone and do what is right by the Constitution. And I think President Trump is going to appoint somebody who meets those tests. I do, too. In fact, I think one of the things that the left is so upset about when it comes to this nomination is that the president actually laid out the list, which was vetted by the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation, when he was still just a candidate. So when Americans elected him, they also tacitly gave their approval for any of those 25 individuals to be his nominee should a vacancy appear. So he's coming from a position of strength where he actually asked the permission of the American people and was given a full-throated yes, we like these people. So now he gets to choose from that list and kind of uh, maybe add some nuance to it. But basically he's saying we all agreed that these people would, one of them would be a nominee at some point. And so here is that one person. I think it was actual genius on his part, which, and I share your, your, it's kind of surprising that uh, Claire McCaskill doesn't want to meet you face to face in a, in a, in a, in a debate situation. I think in any offer that is made to her to come and explain her ideas and her preferences for the state of Missouri and, and for being our Senator, she should be willing to do that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your campaign right now, right now we're in the primary and the big news around Missouri right now is that the, um, I believe it's the National Republican Party has decided to put money into the race on your behalf, and the primary's not even over yet. So that's kind of an endorsement of the strength of your campaign. Well, I tell you what, I, I am I'm very uh, grateful to have the support of the president uh, who endorsed me for this race. He actually, you know, convinced me to run in this race, Stacey, uh, and uh, endorsed me for this race uh, last fall. And I'm hugely grateful for his support. He's been to the state here uh, campaigning for me, and, and I hope he'll come back uh, more times, hopefully many more times, uh, because uh, his record is just so phenomenal. But uh, I'm certainly grateful for that, uh, proud to have that support. And look, Claire McCaskill is the least popular senator in America on a ballot in 2018, and there is a reason for that. She has earned that record. She's a world-class phony when it comes to her record in representing the people of Missouri. She says she's independent. She's not. She votes with Chuck Schumer 90-plus percent of the time. She says that uh, she wants to work across the aisle. She doesn't. She's voted no on every subject that matters to President Trump in the state of Missouri, whether it was Justice Neil Gorsuch or rolling back regulations on farmers and small business uh, or trying to uh, uh, get health care costs down by getting a bipartisan bill that would actually help Missouri families. She's just a hard no. And if that's not what Missouri needs, that's not what Missouri wants. Uh, we need somebody who's actually going to accomplish things for our people and represent our values and our way of life. And that's really what this election is all about. So I'm excited about seeing a new opportunity open up in the general for, you know, the, basically for this contest to, to, to unfold for you to meet Claire McCaskill on the field of battle and for both of you to be able to present why she feels she's better for Missourians and why you feel you're better for Missourians. And I know you've been really traveling the state, putting your, your, your platform out there, and you've been diligently saying to voters, look, ask me whatever you'd like to know. 
what is the one thing you want voters to know? And I, I plan to, if she comes on the program, I plan to ask her the same thing, um, you know, to, in all fairness, to give people an opportunity to weigh what, what the decision is going to be, what, who they can choose. What do you want to tell voters is, is the most important thing for Missourians when they're deciding to, who to send back to D.C. to represent them in the Senate um, about you, Josh Hawley, what you would do if you were sent there? Well, I just want voters to know that I am proud of our way of life here in the state of Missouri. I grew up in a little town of not quite 5,000 people in the west central part of our state. Uh, that's who I am. It's what I represent. Uh, I don't fly around in a private plane uh, and uh, just parrot the views of the liberal money elite, which is what Claire McCaskill does. I'm not ashamed of our way of life. I'm proud of it. I've lived it my whole life. I come from a family of farmers, my mother's side of the family. And uh, I, I am proud of that, too. I grew up spending my summers on my grandpa's farm and uh, working out in the fields. The family tradition, Stacy, and my family called cutting weeds, which we do about this time of the year out in the <laughs> soybeans and uh, uh, out in the heat. My mother did it. We did it. I can't wait for my boys to get to learn to do it. But the point is this, that, that, that our way of life in this state and in this part of the country, it, I'm proud of it. And we need somebody to represent that way of life in the United States Senate. You know, Hollywood and Wall Street, they've got plenty of voices in the U.S. Senate, and they certainly have Claire McCaskill. They don't need anybody else. So it's time we had somebody who would stand up for our way of life, vote for judges who, who share our values and our philosophy, vote to, to uh, secure our border and actually enforce our immigration laws, vote to bring back jobs from overseas, get health care costs down. All of that comes down to renewing and preserving our way of life, and I'm proud of that. That is what my focus is, and that's what I want people to know about me. Well, I think it was very well put, and I'm glad that you were able to come on the show today to discuss it. And really, one of, one of the things that I find so fascinating about Missouri, because I'm, I'm a transplant, my husband and I have lived here now for nearly 20 years, but what I, what I love about Missouri, and also kind of hate, besides our weather, is that Missourians are so much in love with our way of life here in the state of Missouri. And so it would be great to have someone who can... Uh, represent the state who doesn't want to tear down the kind of Midwestern family values. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing more from you and hopefully from Claire McCaskill on how each candidate plans to represent Missourians. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out to come on today. Oh, thank you so much, Stacey. Thanks for all you do and hope to talk with you more soon. Yes, absolutely. Hope to have you back on um, and good luck on the campaign trail. Thank you. All right. Thank you. So that was Missouri Attorney General Josh Hawley. And it was really great of him to take time out of his busy schedule. He's working as our attorney general and then also running his campaign to join the program. I invite Claire McCaskill to uh, consider taking the time out to come on the show. I know she's an abortion supporter and there are a number of different issues that are central to how I vote that she's not exactly we're not on the same page. But as we've interviewed Rachel Dolezal and so many other liberals here on this show, um, I would welcome the opportunity to have her come on and explain her campaign to the listeners and then and, and to me and to give us the opportunity to give her a fair hearing as we've just done with Josh Hawley. And uh, if you want to find out more, of course, check my Twitter feed and you'll find out uh, really good information there um, for more research and, and interesting opportunities. And right now, I want to also give kind of a shout out, um, personal family shout out. I mentioned in the first hour that we were celebrating our wedding anniversary Yesterday was our anniversary, and we haven't actually celebrated, celebrated because we had some other family things that were going on here uh, at, at Shea Washington that, would, that had to be addressed right then and there. But I want to encourage young married people who might be listening to the show, and maybe you're at that, it's a really itchy, scratchy, weird part of your marriage when you're in year six and year seven, and a lot of people divorce during those years, and they um, for some reason, it's just like this weird phenomenon where Americans get divorced in the sixth or seventh year of marriage. And I would encourage you to not do that, to instead find a great women's Bible study if you're the wife and join together with other Christian women. And I'm talking about a marriage Bible study. There are a number of really great ones out there. And oh, I also want to let you guys know, as a part of our giveaways in the month of August, I have secured some books by one of my favorite Bible study authors and prayer warriors, Darby Duggar. You can go to her website, DarbyDugger.com, D-A-R-B-Y-D-U-G-G-E-R, DarbyDugger.com, and check out her prayer resources there. Some of the best prayer resources I've 
ever come across and all of the things I've ever read. Um, she's up there right with, with Mike Bickle, in my opinion, for having the proper attitude about prayer and the, the just laying out like a roadmap for you. And she has these 30-day prayer calendars that you can download if you subscribe to her blog. And they're so helpful because none of us are perfect in having, you know, every day it's the same time, same, same every day, and we never falter, we never are sick or oversleep or anything like that. But for people who are committed, if you really want to commit yourself to a life of prayer for your husband, her website is it's the go-to for me. You, you may have one that you like and feel free to you know text me, tweet me, whatever, uh, to let me know what you think about that. But I recommend that you go there and subscribe so you can get access to her 30-day prayer calendars, which are phenomenal. And so as a part of the giveaways for next month, we'll be giving away copies of her book, which is about prayer for wives. And then for the men in the audience, I can't pastor you, but I can definitely recommend to you that if you get into a small group at your church with other men who are marriage-minded, married, they prioritize their marriages, and you guys pray and support each other. And that doesn't have to be where you're meeting at the church. It can be where you guys are doing a prayer conference call every morning at 6 a.m. or uh, you're getting together and playing basketball or playing golf and um, you know, ending with a meal and praying for your marriages at that point. If you get a little support group going on, it can really temper your expectations in marriage and it can make it not just easier, but almost easy to see past year six and year seven. And before you know it, you're at year 10. And then the next thing you know, it's 15. And that's how it's been for my husband and I. Every year I look up that we're having our anniversary, I'm like, whoa, 22 years. I still feel like we're in like year nine. Is it really been 22 years? And we always laugh about it. And so the, the, that, that's the encouragement that I want to give to you. If you're, if you're young married, what I like to say, if you're my marriage grandchild, because I've been married for over 20 years, um, or if you're right there in the thick of it with me and you may be hitting a rough patch, give God the opportunity to be in that mix with you and to answer your prayers and to strengthen your marriage. It's constant work being married. It's constant work um, getting getting the priorities right. But if you commit yourself to it, it's so worthy. It's so wonderful. And it can be, I I expect it to continue to get better with time. And I really, you have to be expecting that because the time with your children is short. And you may think to yourself, well, 18 years, that's not short. It is. As someone who's, our daughter is now 18 and a half. She's leaving for college in a few weeks. And I'm telling you, the time is short. Every minute that you think, ah, my goodness, they're potty training or they're, you know, they're in their terrible twos or now they're in grade school and I haven't been, you know, two hours straight sitting on the couch at my house for like six days because every night there's an activity. Listen to the little promo that I, I shot about slowing down, slow down a little bit, enjoy that time with your kids because the time with them is short. And then you'll be back with your spouse for the remainder of the time in your marriage. And you don't want the last kid to leave home and you look over at your husband or your wife and think, who is that? <laughs> because you haven't spent any time with them and you don't know who they are anymore. Prioritize those marriages. And um, if you're married, God bless you. If you're not yet married, pray for that spouse to swiftly be sent to you. God will answer that prayer as well. Okay, that's the show. And that's the week. Have a wonderful weekend. Get in the pew on Sunday. And I'll be back with you on Monday, right in the afternoon. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association.